So, this is my first episode in my series, Walking for Thousands of Miles in Silence. This series will consist of stories about some of the journeys I've made, the pilgrimages, the long-distance hikes. I'm going to tell you my story, but will also elaborate upon historical, cultural, or other interesting information related to both my story and the hike that I did. Some of my hikes took months and extended for thousands of miles. However, some of the most significant walks I've taken are much, much shorter in distance. This episode is really a long talk about a short walk. This one is about my hike to a cave associated with the Tibetan Mahasiddha Milarepa. And the cave is known as the Hunter's Cave because at this location, the renowned Milarepa composed a famous Buddhist, Buddhist song which taught an enraged local hunter causation and compassion. The hunter stopped hunting wild animals after listening to Milarepa and became a practitioner of Dharma at this very cave that I was that I was hiking to. So it's a very famous cave. The song that he sang that taught the hunter to give up killing is also a very uh, well-known Buddhist hymn in Tibet. Um, it's worth noting that Milarepa was an itinerant, and he spent many many of his years meditating in a cave that was located approximately 200 miles to the southeast, north of Kathmandu Valley, uh, in what's now Tibet, in a place called um, Numkading Cave. This is where he spent many years of his life, and this is back in the 11th century, almost a thousand years ago. It's located, that cave, Numkading Cave, is located about seven miles from the town of Nyalam, and it's close by to the China-Nepal Friendship Highway above the Mustang, the Matsang River in Nyalam, Nyalam County in Tibet. So my hike was done in 2016 while I was trekking around the Annapurna Circuit with my Nepali brothers who I met while staying in a village during a homestay. The Annapurna Circuit is a trek within the mountain ranges of central Nepal. The total length of the route varies between 100 to 145 miles, depending upon where you get dropped off, where you use trucks or get a ride, and where you end the trek. The trek crosses two different river valleys and encircles the Annapurna Massif. It reaches its highest point at Thurin La Pass, which is 17,769 feet, almost 18,000 feet. And at Kogbeni, you can cross over and go up onto the very edge of the Tibetan Plateau, which gets up into Mustang, the Mustangi region. Most trekkers hike the route counterclockwise because... As you are gaining elevation, the elevation gain is slower on a daily, if you're hiking daily. And so the cross, and when you cross over Thuring La Pass, when you, when you do ascend up to 18,000 feet, it's easier. And for that reason, a lot of people hike this route counterclockwise. The scenery along the Annapurna Circuit includes uh, views of 
Annapurna 1 through Annapurna 4, because there, there are four main peaks in it, to Annapurna. It includes views of Dalgiri, Machaputre, Manaslu, Gangapurna, Tilako Peak, Pisang Peak, and Pangala Danda. Uh, there are many other peaks as well that range from six to eight thousand meters, so ranging up to uh, to to uh, twenty four thousand feet within the Annapurna range. There are a lot of very big hills. Annapurna Circuit has been has been consistently considered as one of the preeminent long distance hikes in the world because previously, when it was in its old form. There was a you, you hike through a wide variety of climate zones that range from the tropics at 600 meters, like 1800 feet, you're in the tropics, and then you, you hike all the way up into the Arctic at 15,000 feet and above. And there's also a wide variety of different cultural groups that you experience and pass through the Gurung region, the uh, Tibetans. So it's it's a great way to to experience to Nepali and Tibetan culture. There is there has been the continuing construction of a road that's shortened the trail and has changed the villages, but not so much. When we went up there, I would say that it it still has a lot of the a lot of the charm to that region. It's now just a lot more accessible, and the people who live there um, really really did need to have the benefit of a road to improve their quality of life. So it's one of those things when you talk about the road going through there. Is it a good thing, bad thing? Anyway, I'm going to discuss more about my travels to Nepal in another episode or maybe several episodes because I had one of the best times of my life on that visit and I, it, and I got to do a lot of trekking. I even was lucky enough to have uh, to take a week-long trip to Tibet where I was able to walk around Holy Mount Kailash, and so I completed an outer Kora of Mount Kailash. Uh, the trek, this trek though, the one that this episode is about, um, this trek to Milarepa's cave is one that, in many respects, I've been studying and preparing for my whole life. In order to properly understand the significance of the importance of my hike to the Hunter's Cave, it's necessary to travel back to the 1990s. Back 30 years ago, when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I first became acquainted with the life and teachings of Milarepa. At the time, I was a troubled young man who was unaware of the fact that I had autism. I had difficulty in school. I ran away from home. I had troubles caused by drinking a lot of alcohol, getting drunk. As a result of those problems, I sought ways to improve my self-control. I looked at myself as someone who needed to fix myself. I needed to take the initiative. Buddhism, Taoism, and Hinduism all provided me with material that I used to help me develop better self-control. I also studied martial arts during this period. Back in the early 1990s, we didn't have cell phones and the internet had not proliferated to the extent that it has now. If you were interested in a subject, you had to go out and locate books at stores or at a local library. The Life and Teachings of Milarepa was a book I used to carry around with me. 
I can still remember the cover of the paperback book, the beat-up cover of it. During this period, I took some of my first overnight hikes on the Appalachian Trail in Vermont, mostly in southern Vermont between Williamstown and Manchester Center. I sometimes sat and meditated in the three-walled shelters on the Appalachian Trail. My gear for these hikes consisted of a canvas German army backpack with leather straps. I didn't have a sleeping bag, just a blanket. My food usually consisted of a giant bag of peanut M&M's, or bread and a jar of peanut butter, or crackers and a block of cheese. I, I, I never brought soda or, or really considered the nutritional needs that I would have on these hikes. Um, often on these poorly planned hikes, I'd end up sleeping on the ground with no ground sheet, just a blanket. If it sounds crazy, it was. But it was, it, it was an interesting experience. And at the time, I was reading books about Milarepa, reading about aestheticism, I'd go out into the to hike in the woods, and when I started getting really, really hungry, in my mind I was connecting with uh, the the hermits in the caves that I was reading about, who were legitimately starving. I mean, I, I don't equate my austerities of hiking with with poor planning to anything like what what Milarepa went through, but I remember at the time I. I conceptualized things uh, based on what I was reading. Milarepa's story contains a great deal about compassion and empathy. It's a story about redemption and transcendence. Milarepa was born about a thousand years ago in Dingriwa, Dingri, which is in the Shigatse region of Tibet. This area borders Nepal and the Mount Everest region. The family that Milarepa was born into was full of betrayal, envy, and jealousy. Apparently, relatives had stolen wealth from Milarepa's mother, who then encouraged a very young Milarepa to commit vicious acts of retribution. At the tender age of seven, Milarepa was sent off to learn Maleficum. By Maleficum, I mean black magic. From and so Milarepa was sent at age seven to study black magic with a tantric practitioner of magic. That's a really interesting concept if you think about it. You know, one's early education. I mean, you got to think about that. Milarepa's mother sends her son to study how to murder her relatives by sending. A seven-year-old Milarepa off with a wizard who's, who practices black magic. Now, the family had, had wealth. There was a lot of wealth at issue. And Milarepa ultimately was successful in getting his mother what she wanted. He got her what she wanted. At a large family gathering, many of the relatives who had stolen from Milarepa's mother had gathered. They were gathered in a large stone building. Milarepa knew they would be there and used his training as a dark sorcerer to cause the building to collapse. When the time came, the stone structure collapsed, killing 35 people. Through his black magic, Milarepa had caused a mass murder by means of an architectural defect. 
this evil deed got some of his mother's wealth back to her. And for a very short time, Melarepa enjoyed enjoyed the benefits of what he had done. But, but very soon after the event, everyone knew who was responsible. Murder, especially murder caused by a building collapse, is not something that the local peasantry were very comfortable with. They were not comfortable with having someone around who used black magic and sorcery and had actually murdered people. This led to Milarepa becoming an outcast. Any benefit from those killings dissipated and was gone. Milarepa lost his wealth. He ultimately loses his family. His mother dies while he is off studying and, and meditating in caves. All of, all of the reasons why he engaged in these murderous acts come to nothing for him. Milarepa was reduced to begging and foraging for food in mountain caves. The early part of the life of Mount Milarepa involves his escape to a cave where he basically has no help and is starving to death. The ghosts of the people he murdered come back to the cave and haunt him. For years, Milarepa lived alone in caves, with no food except what he could forge from the barren mountains, and, and perhaps some food that he might be able to beg from, from somebody. Throughout his life, he eventually reaches a point where he no longer really eats food. This is according to the story. He subsists entirely off of nettle tea, tea made from wild nettles. And so his skin is, he, he's described as having green, waxy-colored skin as a result of consuming so much, so many herbs. It's unclear if that's what it is or if he actually has bacteria growing on his skin. There's not a clear... There is some debate about how it is that he is characterized as having green skin. This period of severe asceticism almost causes Milarepa's death. In a way, the purification of the evil karma Milarepa created is only possible by Milarepa basically starving himself to death. But Milarepa doesn't die. Associated with the black magic Milarepa had studied was also some sort of training in shamanism. Milarepa wandered extensively from his homeland, traveling throughout Tibet, and in his study of black magic, he also learned about some yogic practices which were more a part of the Bun, Bunpo shamanic tradition. During this period, the starving Milarepa gets help from one very important person, that person being Marpa Lotsawa. Marpa, without Marpa, Milarepa's story might never have, have actually occurred. Milarepa has three teachers of Buddhism that he interacts with. And I think it's significant that he has three teachers because in his song about the hunter, Song to the Hunter, the hunter's song, for the hunt from the hunter's cave, uh, Milarepa sings about how there's a deer chased by a dog, chased by a hunter. So in certain respects, 
Milarepa's Dharma teachers also follow this sort of triptych where Milarepa has a first teacher who is a Nyingmapa Lama who actually teaches Milarepa about Dzogchen. Dzogchen is a, a Buddhist practice or a way of approaching enlightenment. Milarepa did not understand the, the Dzogchen teaching that he was taught. And in certain respects, this is how we characterize Milarepa as Nyompa. Um, traditional sane methods of developing Dharma practice did not work, but Milarepa does attain enlightenment. So he's in this other group of sort of the madmen, the Nyompa. And one of the reasons is the difficulty with which he, he seems to learn Dharma. The teacher Milarepa ultimately does receive Buddhist teachings from is Marpa. Marpa Marpa Lazawa was a Dharma practitioner and a Lama who had traveled from Tibet to India to study and gain an education and to learn uh, about Buddhism and other, other, uh, other subjects. After receiving his Buddhist teachings in India, Marpa relocated back to southern Tibet with his wife. So Marpa is a married man. He's a householder. He is, has returned from India with a great deal of training and knowledge before Milarepa meets him. Marpa was compassionate, but he struggled with anger. His anger and the control of it were a large part of why, perhaps, Marpa actually sought out Buddhist teachings while he was in India. The anger and stubbornness is seen vividly in the story of Milarepa, in how Marpa treats Milarepa. Marpa does not agree to teach Milarepa quickly. He denies Milarepa. Part of the story involves Marpa appearing to Milarepa in disguise. The first time, before Milarepa has actually met Marpa, there's a story of how Milarepa meets a, a herder a farmer in a field and he's looking for where Marpa is and there's a whole exchange that he has with this man who actually is Marpa but he's dressed up like a, a common farmer and so Milarepa doesn't quite <laughs> understand it. but it's um I, I'm not going to get too into it because this whole this whole episode will be just about Milarepa's story there's a tremendous amount of nuance to it Anyway, Marpa's, it gets so bad, Marpa denies Milarepa again and again. Eventually, Milarepa goes and talks to Marpa's wife. Marpa's wife has sympathy, and she actually forges a letter for Milarepa to take to go study with another llama. It's like Milarepa's trying to, trying and trying again. Marpa's, no, 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 no. And finally, Marpa's wife, here, take this and try down the street. So Milarepa leaves and he goes and he commences study with his second Dharma teacher. But again, he fails. He can't, he can't understand what the teaching is. This again is part of this whole Nyompa aspect to this. Milarepa again returns to request teachings from Marpa. Finally, Marpa agrees. And Milarepa undergoes 12 years of ordeals. 
And I think it's significant that it's the number 12. There are 12 years of ordeals in the story of Milarepa. And it's similar, in, I think, to the 12 labors of Hercules. The significance of there being a, the number 12 associated with this. And if you look at, um, um, this is kind of a digression to sort of a comparative a comparative analysis of ancient religions. I believe that the Vedic tradition, the Vedic traditions of Vajrayana have been practiced all over the ancient world. And so there is a story in Greek mythology of the 12 labors of Hercules. And many of these involve Hercules doing things that seem very mundane, but are on a much on a scale where it becomes epic. For example, Hercules, the hero, has to clean the Aegean, the Augean stables with a whisk broom. And the, those stables are miles in diet. They're, they're huge. The, the historical stables that Hercules has to clean as part of the 12 labors is a huge area. It's miles. Thousands of horses live there. And yet Hercules accomplishes this. I just wanted to point it out because I think it's worth noting that much of this tradition of transformation, of taking someone who has done wrong, Milarepa has, has become a black sorcerer and has murdered 35 people. Marpa applies a Vajrayana, a tantric approach. And so the 12 years of ordeals are calculated to bring about Milarepa's complete enlightenment and in many ways his salvation. So Milarepa approaches Marpa the second time. The two of them make a deal. Marpa will teach Milarepa Buddhism and Milarepa will help build nine towers for Marpa at his his gompa. And this is a laborious task. It takes years for Milarepa to complete these nine towers. And the Milarepa will start building them. Marpa will come up and tell them he's doing it wrong. And then he'll have to tear down the whole structure again and start again. Now, in addition to building these towers within the story, Milarepa also builds houses for Marpa's children. And these many of these structures, specifically the nine towers, still stand today in 2023 at Sehar Gutak in Tibet, in southern Tibet. I think that the building and the construction is kind of significant. A construction project has always seemed to be an important aspect or symbol of Buddhist practice. There's an image that Buddha used to make his metaphors of a house with six windows. It's a highly symbolic image in Buddhist art, for example. The image of an empty house with six windows. It's meant to represent an individual with their six senses. A human being is like a house with six windows. So Marpa requiring Milarepa to construct nine towers has a symbolic meaning. The number nine corresponds to the nine angles within the endless knot, also known as the eternal knot, which is one of the eight auspicious symbols of Buddhism. It's also significant because Milarepa, 
through his crimes, has destroyed the house that he's been living in. Milarepa has destroyed his empty house, the empty house with six windows that Milarepa inhabits. He's been injured so much by starvation and sickness, which is a direct result of the murders that he's committed. He's destroyed that house. Milarepa's body is starved and sick as a direct result of his crimes, as a result of the austerities which he endured as an outcast. Marpa directs Milarepa to build nine towers to generate karmic energy to eliminate the negative karma that Milarepa has made. Marpa and his technique is a kinesthetic one, a kinesic one. It's only through physical action that Milarepa repairs his karma. It's not an esoteric discussion or a mantra or an abstract practice. Marpa demands Milarepa to alter the physical world in a way calculated to generate enough positive action, enough positive karma, to help to bring Milarepa to great enlightenment and ultimately to Milarepa's salvation. Milarepa, in effect, through these tantric practices, is building a diamond body from Dharma that will generate compassion in others. Milarepa must physically repair the injury he caused to those he murdered by 12 years of laborious training under Marpa. This includes solitary meditation retreats supplied with food by Marpa. And so these, this is a new stage for Milarepa. The early stage of his asceticism in the caves is done with no help from anyone. But now Marpa has agreed to help him. Marpa's wife is providing food for him. And so Milarepa is again within a community of Buddhists who are helping him. Marpa Lotsawa is in many ways the, the most important figure in the life of Milarepa. Because without Marpa, there really is no story of Milarepa. Milarepa had been unable to develop his own Dharma practice under two lamas before Marpa. Marpa is the third lama. The story of Milarepa was accessible to the farmers and common people of Nepal because all of the characters are people from their world. It's not a discourse using classical Sanskrit but through songs that Milarepa brought people to a better understanding of the results of violent, harmful actions. This isn't an esoteric discussion that Milarepa engages in. These are songs that are appealing to, to farmers. People who might not be able to read can still hear his songs. Marpa is a very virtuous and compassionate Buddhist householder who finds Milarepa and rescues him with Dharma teaching. Marpa resided in southern Tibet, which is a long distance from Milarepa Cave near Manang. And I think it is important to note that Milarepa was itinerant and lived by foraging and begging. It is through compassion and empathy that Marpa brings Milarepa from the brink of death back to life. While in the hunter's cave near Manang, Milarepa sometimes had hunters come and visit him. Milarepa was a very good singer, and he would entertain his guests with songs. These hunters became the first to receive Milarepa's teaching. At the specific cave that I visited near Manang, on this hike that I did, Milarepa is famously known to have converted a hunter into giving up the killing of animals. It's said that Milarepa 
was disturbed in his meditations by a deer that was being chased by a dog, which in turn was being followed by a hunter. And it's significant, this chain here. There's first a deer, then comes the dog, then comes the hunter. The hunter's name was Keragombadoni. When Milarepa did not allow the hunter to kill the deer, the hunter turned his arrows at Milarepa. And I can see, it's very, there's a great image here, Milarepa, starved. This, this man in undergoing years of asceticism by himself in the mountains. A deer comes running. I can kind of almost see Milarepa, the deer coming to Milarepa, and Milarepa standing and between the deer and the hunter. <laughs> so Milarepa does not allow the hunter to kill the deer. The hunter turns his arrows on Milarepa and fires arrows at Milarepa. So, the arrows could not harm Milarepa, and in, but instead of being angry with the hunter, Milarepa started teaching, and he wasn't teaching just to the hunter. Milarepa also gave a teaching to the dog and to the deer also on ways to attain their salvation. And so these, this, uh, this spontaneous song becomes the hymn of the hunter, and it consists of three songs, the song of the deer, the song of the dog, and the song of the hunter. The song of the hunter is the most famous hymn that was created at this particular cave. Milarepa was known for spontaneous singing in such a way that his voice and songs inspired in people deep realization, deep realization and a desire to achieve enlightenment. Milarepa is unlike any other Buddhist saint or teacher. There are no other Buddhist teachers, saints, or, or, or other noted people from antiquity who were quite like Milarepa. In Tibetan Buddhism, there are colorful characters, but Milarepa stands out among them. Most of the important people in the Buddhist tradition are scholars. They're linguists philosophers. Milarepa is, by comparison, a magician who is a popular folk singer. In Buddhism, there's a strong tradition of scholarship and learning. However, within Tibetan Buddhism, there are also figures who provided different paths to enlightenment. Milarepa taught through his storytelling, through his singing. He helped to explain the dangers of making bad choices, of making bad karma through song and art. And Milarepa was a beloved folk hero. He lived to be 84 years old. Most of his life was spent in seclusion, meditating in mountain caves, joined by only a few disciples who received his teaching. However, Marpa, after he passed away, named Milarepa as his heir. So Milarepa inherited the the Dharma practice and the lineage of Marpa. And that's how Marpa became a Lama was was from his involvement with Marpa. Sadly, Milarepa died at the age of eighty four as a result of being poisoned. So 
Milarepa, all of his attainment of enlightenment, all of the followers, all of all of what he did in his life. At the age of 84, he was poisoned by a fellow monk. That monk was, it was noted that he was jealous of Milarepa. He was jealous of the success that he had had, the wealth that he had acquired, the fame he had acquired. And so the monk poisoned him when he was 84 years old, Milarepa. And by that point, it should be understood that Milarepa is an invalid. He's, he's 84 years old. He's somebody who's suffered his whole life from starvation. He's, he drinks nothing but nettle tea, nothing but herbal tea. His skin has turned green as a result of that. So by the age of 84, I would, su- I would suggest that Milarepa is probably not able to even walk. I, I, there are... I, I believe that by this point, by that point in his life, he was, he was very, um, his body was, was very, um, very frail. Now, Milarepa is considered a Nyumpa. I mentioned this earlier in the episode. A Nyumpa in Tibetan Buddhism refers to someone who inspires enlightenment through non-Buddhist practices. A nyumpa is essentially a free spirit who follows the rule of spontaneity and intuition, not subject to any external book of rules. He's someone who's dedicated his life to renunciation and the path of enlightenment, and he doesn't fit within the, 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 the disciplines and practices of any of the formal Buddhist orders. Typically, a nyumpa is someone who's, who wanders homeless, takes on a new style of dress, and a new mental attitude towards the world. They're, uh, they consume things that are not considered pure. Meat, for example. They might drink alcohol. They enjoy singing and dancing. They behave fearlessly. One might say foolishly, perhaps, but fearlessly. They're not afraid of very much. And they'll engage in sexual relations. These are all things that a Buddhist practitioner, a Buddhist monk must refrain from. They don't eat meat. They don't drink alcohol. They must be very chaste in their sexual relations. They have to be very reserved. None of these practices are mandatory. This is just to give you an idea of what kinds of characteristics, what sort of non-Buddhist activities are looked at as as nyompa. Now, a nyompa will do all of the above, but... They won't read a lot of spiritual texts and they won't be reciting a lot of prayers in the usual ways. So the Nyompa, like Milarepa, through his singing, he doesn't recite prayers, but the outcome of his non-Buddhist activity is to inspire the dedication and the belief, the empathy that people pray for, if that makes sense. It's using something that's non that's not enlightened as a way to achieve enlightenment. Among the other cited figures from um, antiquity in the medieval period who were considered to be Nyungpa were. Uh, Drupa Kunle and other people like uh, Sunam Peldon and 
there were others as well who just their practice encompassed more than just a Dharma practice. And, you know, it, it, it gets into other religious practices, um, incorporation of, uh, other, other cultural and social, social methods of developing, um, the same the, the the sort of level of mind that attains to uh, great enlightenment. So the the use of it's it's quote unquote like imp, impure, but that's that's really the wrong way to to put it. But you know, in quotes, like in, the use of impure means in to attain enlightenment, or means that by impure means that don't don't follow sort of a typical path that's part of an established lineage in school. Like, that's the, real, the best way of looking at it. So something that's unincorporated. So the best, the use of such means to attain enlightenment is some form of tantra. Tantra. Um, so looking at Milarepa and other uh, Nyampa, they should be understood as tantric practitioners. And so they were practicing other other methods and systems that uh, brought about the uh, the attainment. Tantra is an important aspect of Vajrayana Buddhism, and also of Vedic civilization. Uh, during the period when Milarepa was alive, there were people known as Siddha, Siddha, uh, who would seek out and attain spiritual and psychic powers through yoga and tantric practices. Milarepa himself is considered a siddha. Now, this is not to be confused with the siddha you hire to watch your kids when you live in Boston and have a Boston accent. A siddha basically translates from Sanskrit as one who is accomplished. When I was younger, I would have benefited from a mahasiddha instead of the mean siddha that I had as a kid. <laughs> you know? yeah, just sort of make a pun there. In my early 20s, I was interested in developing self-control and mental powers, magical powers, to control uh, autism, to control my um, things like perseverance of ideas and um, anxiety related to... Uh, being, being, uh, being trained to mask symptomology such as uh, verbal processing and other traits from other people consistently um, was there's a lot of anxiety to that. Like according my language to to that of typical people, <laughs> people who are normal, has been a chore at times, and so. You know, it's it's difficult just just getting anything done. Um, but when I was younger, I was interested in developing self control and mental powers to control anger, rage, things like that. I suffered mostly from very bad anxiety, though, which was created by and caused social isolation because anxiety in certain social situations can can lead to. To, to bad outcomes. I, I didn't always have that. I had very good situations that I was in, but uh, 
yeah, during that period, there was a lot of anxiety, and I isolated a lot. I learned to isolate from, from some of what happened during that period. It is tragic that during this period of my life, I internalized the meaning and message of Milarepa, but did not achieve enough social connection to be able to develop meaningful social relationships with like Buddhist teachers, or to really join a community of people who practiced Buddhism and understood a lot of these concepts because I have autism, <laughs> you know, and it was undiagnosed at the time. So I was anosognosia of it. And it's just really weird. I, and <laughs> like the Siddha, I did develop some spiritual and psychic abilities, which centered on control of my anxiety and frustrated anger. Um, so I carried my paperback copy of Life and Teach the Milarepa around back in the early 1990s. I studied martial arts during that period, and you can visualize me in the woods doing martial arts forms by myself, alternately sitting under a tree with with eyes closed, breathing carefully. Unfortunately, this harmonious image of me was conjoined with a different part of me. You can visualize a bleary-eyed person isolated and alone, wallowing in a sea of Bushmills whiskey while listening to, like, long play records. Or perhaps an image of me grinding my teeth in some fit of impotent rage as I drive behind the wheel of a rusty Pontiac station wagon. You know, I, was, I wasn't I was entirely well during a lot of that, that period. And if I've noticed my autism worked to prevent me from fully connecting with the people who also shared the story of Milarepa as an important aspect of their belief system. You know, I I think it's it's um it, it's a very meaningful story. I was very lucky to have returned to Nepal in twenty sixteen, a different person than who had tried and failed to connect back back in the nineteen nineties. I was very different coming back in twenty sixteen. So Myself and my companions had trekked all day and had made our way to the village of Pasang and were heading to Manang. And we were traveling around Annapurna in a counterclockwise direction rather than in a clockwise direction as someone who is Buddhist will walk around a stupa or like or do circumnavulate the Annapurna massive, which is certainly you know, something to think about because I subsequently did the outer Kora of Mount Kailas and I did so in a clockwise direction. But practitioners of Bun would go in the other direction and I did see people walking in the other direction who were doing um, a, a reverse circumnabulation. Counterclockwise circ- circumnabulation is done by practitioners who of shamanism Bumpo religion, things like that. Or people doing other practices within a Buddhist belief system or a whole other belief system. Um, anyway, we started our trek from just outside Pokhara. So we had been hiking for weeks. Uh, my friends are members of the Gurung ethnic group and their homeland is that region around Annapurna. So this was their their native area where they're from. But I think... I'm not sure if any of these guys had been up to Manang, like all the way up along this part of that route, or had gone over Thurunwa before. I think, like, 
they'd come the other direction from Muktinath. I think one of them had been to Muktinath, but they were still all really young. Um, but I was lucky to be with these guys. They were very respectable, and they took really good care of me. We did other hikes. I went up to Annapurna Base Camp with, with these guys, too, and up to uh, uh, Marty Himal. But we stopped at the traditional residence of the Gurun King, which is not currently a government office. It's It didn't look like there were people living there. It's more of a museum. It's still maintained, but it's it's not in active use right now. And these guys, they were generally really happy to, I think, just get a chance to walk around and to check out this part of the territory where they're from. Because they don't, it's, the way the geography is, it's very complicated to get from where they were. Like, if, you, if they walked in a straight line over ABC, they would be in Manang really quickly. But the way it's, that's a difficult, that's not an easy thing to do. So going, you have to go all the way back down through Pokhara and up around this whole other route, which on foot would take a really long time. So, and you understand the geography, how the, the valleys existed for a really long time to isolate groups within this region. So there's an incredible diversity of language and, we had been walking for a week past Beshazzar. Um, we did take a truck out of Beshazzar because there was a lot of construction. They were doing uh, a lot of stuff. And so it was just a good idea to just take a truck. And it wasn't, it was a lot of farm. Farm is an agricultural area, so we just kind of boogied through there. And um, there was a big tunnel project going on, too. But after that, we got, we, we, start, we were on foot for several days. At least, I'd say three or four days, two or three days. Um, we've been walking for a week, maybe. Um, that day, and the day that we approached Manang and Milarepa's cave, the weather was clear and it was warm but not very hot. We started the day somewhere close to the village of Pasang. In the morning, I remember we came upon a group of locals. They played the traditional Nepali game of guess the nationality of the hiker. People like to do that sometimes, like in Nepal. People say American, British, Canada. Ma USA Batahun. I say Ma USA Batahun. I've studied Nepali before. And I've been to Nepal before. One of the gentlemen we met uh, struck me because he was physically disabled. Where I met him was far away from any towns. And I thought about how difficult it would be for him with barely any roads, much less infrastructure and medical services in that area. Um, I don't remember what we talked about. I think we just kind of said hello. But I remember getting a ride. I think it was with him and friends of his for a short distance in a very beat-up old truck. At the time, I remember thinking about how, after his many austerities, Milarepa's body had been injured by the years of starvation and disease that he had lived through. I thought about this, this fellow that was in the truck with us and it was it it really made me think about things i remember reading that when he was older milarepa couldn't really walk anymore and he had to be physically carried around and in my mind when i met that fellow on the road i thought about milarepa and 
what his austerities had done to his body. So that day, after we parted from that man, I immediately thought of Milagrappa. And was he also carried around like this man we met in a beat-up-old truck? <laughs> Probably not a thousand years ago. Something about this meeting made me feel connected to him, though. Because I just thought about back in that period if he had to go around like how he would have to be carried and people were all all on foot so, but there are it, I, in China people were carried long distances in uh, in cities and things like that so it wasn't unusual was it the suffering of this man that I was thinking about I'm sure that he did but he was also fortunate because he had people around him who were helping him. They seemed to be helping him and working with him or they were with him. So he wasn't like by himself or anything. Um, but we kept walking. On the way to Menang, we passed by stone engravings with prayer wheels. Adorned with prayer flags, we turned the wheels as we passed. But I remember the engravings were very interesting. The stone engravings were beautiful and very well done. You sometimes find very beautiful carvings all over Nepal, on the roads and in small shrines and monasteries. There were birdmen. They were engravings of humanoids with the heads of birds. And they were holding various Vajrayana ritual implements such as dorje, axes, bowls, other objects. And so at the time, I was struck by the fact that I was looking at parrot heads. These people must have been Jimmy Buffett hands. Medieval Nepal was into Jimmy Buffett. Another time, I'll work out this clear connection between Jimmy Buffett and Nepal, but for now, I'll move on. So we continued on. We passed Braga Monastery, which sits above a small village on a hill. As we got to this area, I knew that across from Braga Monastery was the path up to Hunter's Cave. Across the Marshandi River to our left, was the path up to Milarepa's cave. We kept hiking, and we arrived in Manang. After we got to Manang, while still entering the town, I can still remember seeing a korat. This is a gray, uh, domesticated cat breed that was first bred in Thailand, and they they have a very rich mythological history as well. But... Um, the, there was a gray cat who appeared around a corner of a house. We made eye contact, and I felt like I was looking at a cat that I used to take care of when I lived in Salem, Massachusetts. For about 10 years, I had a rescue cat who was a Korat. They typically have green eyes and silver gray fur, and they have rings on their tail, a ring tail. I just remember I felt like my best friend who I hadn't seen in a while. It had been about six years since he had passed away. Um, I, I felt like I had just seen my, my friend, my old cat. So in Manang, we found a good hotel with a restaurant. It was still early, so we got a bite to eat, and we went to play some pool. It's interesting that in Nepal, there's a general prohibition against pool halls in the villages. The government doesn't like them because it seems to lead to a situation where young people, primarily men, hang out in pool halls all day and avoid doing any work. They'd rather play pool all day. 
while we shot a game of pool, which was in a stone building that seemed very ancient, there was actually an earthquake. Perhaps it's not just the Nepali government who frowns on pool playing. Maybe the mountains do too. It was a minor shake. We ended up going back to the hotel. But at the time, I I kind of had, had the feeling that I needed to, to approach things a little more seriously. I shouldn't be spending my time playing pool. So I decided to head off by myself across the Marshandi River with the goal of hiking up to Milarepa's cave. I expected that if I went quickly and didn't sit around that I could hike up and back to the hotel for dinner. So I hiked out across the Marshandi River. Um, in Manang, there's a lake formed from the waters from the Gangaparna, which is prominent to the village. It's a very beautiful area with many stunning vistas. I remember looking at the birds at the lake, looking up at the Gangaparna, and I was waiting for those birds to start flying around and, and show me that they were holding Vajrayana implements. I thought that would have been quite remarkable if they had started to do pujas. Beautiful little birds. I continued to walk back on the opposite side of the Marshandi River, back towards the trail to Milarepa's cave. And it, it was an area without a lot of fields. There were no dwellings on this side of the river. And there were a lot of pine trees. So I kind of went up into the pine trees, was looking around, looking for caves and things. And I came across a musk deer. Not a lot of other animals, but I came across a musk deer up in the pine trees. There were many, many birds. When I startled the deer, I remembered how Milarepa had first seen a deer chased by a dog, followed by a hunter. So now I would be the dog startling the deer? I was very careful not to bark or to chase the deer. The forest was pine. There were no houses on the side of the river, just the footpaths. As I walked, I came across an extraordinary rock formation. Basically, I found a hill with rocks that formed a sort of road, only it was an impossible road. The rock formations achieved a vanishing point as though you were looking down a road. The, the vanishing point was such that it made me want to run really fast and jump onto this image of a road that was the side of a hill with rocks on it. In shamanism, people describe the path that people follow as the road. If I were to choose any real-world feature that I've seen so far that would describe what I think of as the road, that hill near Manang would be a great example of that. It's a remarkable feeling to visit a place that you've read about deeply. I had envisioned in my mind what this valley looked like, what southern Tibet looked like, what Marpa's farm looked like in southern Tibet, what Milarepa's cave at Namkading looked like in southern Tibet, what this area looked like in, in around Annapurna. Oddly, it, was not, it wasn't too far off from what I encountered. It was like being in a dream, though. It's so odd to, to finally put to actually be in the places that you've read about that day there the sky was really amazing and the thumbnail to this to the episode of this podcast shows a stupa and i was standing in the perfect spot so it looks like the stupa is doing something to the clouds but if you look to the left there 
the 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 sky the clouds in the sky looked like a wave like it was something with the the winds at that high elevation it was just a really 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 gorgeous day on that side of the river there were no trail markings and i wandered a little bit but i did have a map and it was very clear where the trail was i was right by the marshandi river which is not not very deep or fast flowing at that point at the elevation of the river the area was full of fields they were full of crops but it didn't seem like they were being tended for purposes of agricultural production it seems that these fields were being maintained by the monastery for puja or for other purposes after a short hike i found myself at what appeared to be a ruined farm it was at the bottom of the trail leading up to hunter's cave there's no caretaker or other person there. I poked my head into what I thought might be a stable or building for animals. The roof was still intact, and someone had been keeping the buildings intact. I sat in the stable for a little bit. I wondered if Marpa found me sitting there, what would he say? Would he tell me to get back to work? Maybe if, if I was at Marpa Lutzawa's farm... His wife might take pity on me. She might give me something to eat. I would be lucky to meet a teacher like him, like Marpa Lotzawa. Millerapa was indeed fortunate to find him. The climb up from the farm is steep. The trail twists and turns. There are many stunning views back down to the valley below, through the pine trees. I remember ascending the trail, coming up above the tree line. A nun passed me heading downhill. The hunter's cave is in the side of the mountain overlooking a moraine. It's a rocky area with few trees except small ones. Inside, inside the cave, there's a statue of the Mahasita Milarepa. Interestingly, unlike other presentations of a Buddha, the statue of Milarepa is flanked not by attendant bodhisattva, as is the common, the common way to, to see Buddha, a Buddha presented, Milarepa is flanked on his right by the hunter and on his left by the dog and the deer. When I was younger, I remember I saw a picture of a statue of Milarepa where Milarepa is sitting with two dogs sitting close by him. And this has always drawn me to Milarepa. Other Buddha are seen flanked by Bodhisattva. Basically, Buddha is, is flanked by, his, by attendants, people who are going to help help him. Milarepa is singular in that he's depicted with animals. I'm not sure if there are, are any other uh, Buddhist saints or deities who have such a close connection with animals as Milarepa does. And I always found this very compelling to me. I always have found my communication easier with dogs than with people. My pet Korat really was the closest thing to me when I was living in Salem, Massachusetts for 10 years. And so seeing the cat in the nang was, was interesting. I walked around the cave. I spun the prayer wheels. Om Ahum, Om Ahum is the mantra. It was a good feeling I had. I walked around. There's a small gompa that's close to the cave. I walked around the buildings. There's a prayer hall and I went inside. It's interesting to feel like someone knows you're there, even when they are hunched over doing something else. I sat down in the meditation hall and a monk or a lama was there doing some sort of puja. 
He did not acknowledge me for about 10 minutes, but I knew he was aware of me. I walked around a bit and started to head down, back down to Menang to meet my friends. I spotted a side trail leading into some rocks. I followed the path and I came around to a ledge above a steep, steep cliff above a several hundred foot, foot drop. There was a small stone structure on the ledge, but it was no house or hut. It was really just the most basic of a structure, just almost a pile of rocks. On that same ledge, there was also a sort of bench formed by the rock. I sat down and contemplated the rock structure. I imagined how difficult it would be to live on a cliff in little more than a pile of stones. But I wasn't alone on the ledge. On the bench next to me was an old blackened metal statue of a Vajrayana deity. The Vajrayana deity was Vajradhara. In my mind, I started to think about the walk back down to Manang to meet my friends. I walked down the hill slowly. I thought to myself, well, that's off the bucket list. I felt satisfaction. I felt that I'd connected with something. The walk back was relatively uneventful. It was not until I arrived at the hotel and had rejoined my friends that I made a discovery. I saw the guys at the hotel. How you doing? Okay, doing good. I then felt for my passport, for my wallet, for any of my necessary documents, and I had none. I was in Manang, hundreds of miles from a major town, with no cash and no passport, no credit card, no ID. Quickly, and without raising the suspicion of my companions, I excused myself. I didn't want to get them upset and, and ruin their day. I started to quickly walk back and retrace my steps. What had I done? I could not believe it. Was I destined to remain in this valley forever? It was dark as I made my way back to Braga Monastery for the third time that day. I again crossed the Marshandi River for the third time that day. Past the fields of wild barley, past the ruined farmhouse, up the winding path, through the pines. It was darker, windy, getting cold now. I found the side path to the cliff. My things had to be there. In Sanskrit, the word for heavy is guru. A teacher is called a guru because they have the weight of knowledge that keeps them in place. They can't be moved by, by ignorance. They have the weight of knowledge that keeps them in place. I was seeking my guru now. <laughs> my guru consisting of all of my identifying documents. That little bit of weight. I was trekking in the dark on a mountain in Nepal, looking for myself, literally seeking the physical manifestation of who I am. <laughs> My headlight first hit the blackened statue of a Vajrayana deity. The angle cast a shadow image of Vajradhara across the rock face. There, on a cliff, sat my identity on a bench next to Vajradhara. Taking myself in my hands, I sat. I was panting from the climb. Sweat was pouring down my face. I'd been thinking about what I would do if I lost everything. What would happen to me now in Manang? I'd end up like Milarepa living in caves. High up on that ledge. High up on that ledge, I found myself. It was cold. 
I need a dinner. It had gotten a little cold. So I remember sitting there and turning my headlight off. And I sat there in the darkness. It was silent except for the wind blowing over the rocks. And I got up and I started my way back down the trail. And now I was, I was no longer scurrying about for my identification and my, my documents. I'd found that little thing. I kept walking down the trail, down and down. I stopped a few times. I wasn't afraid, but I felt, didn't feel alone anymore. I kind of felt like I needed to get out of there, just because I didn't know what was going on. I really had the feeling that there was somebody else there with me. And so, as I went down the trail, I remember all of a sudden, I got goosebumps all over my body. And I stopped in the trail, and I was standing there. And I just started thinking about how I had seen a deer, I had startled the deer. I had come following, following the deer, following the path. And then I had to come back. I came back chasing again as a hunter at night looking for who I am. It was the way in which my whole visit there, which I initially had thought would just be a hike up and back down. The short hike had become something much more meaningful to me. So up on the trail, I had this realization of that day. And I didn't feel alone. And I felt as though my heart, which was beating in my chest, was as though it were my heart was being held in the hand of someone. And in my mind, I remember just thinking about my own mortality. I thought of I started thinking about why I had come up there to do this hike, what I was doing, what I was trying to get out of this. And I had a realization that I'm mortal and I'm going to die. And then I started thinking, well, that wouldn't be so bad. I've done everything. I've done quite a bit. I don't have a lot of obligations to other people, like I don't have children or you know, see any significant obligations. And if I passed away, it would that, that, that's that's going to come. We we can't really do very much about that, can we? And so I didn't get scared. It was a moment where, alone, in the pine trees on the rocky trail, in the dark, you might you might feel it was a little spooky. But after that, I didn't feel scared, and I kept walking, kept walking. went down the trail, and I, I hiked back to Manang. I got to the hotel. It was nice and warm. The lights were on. Had some dinner. <laughs> Hung out with those guys. And I remember that night, I was, I was kind of elated. I felt really good. And... 
I couldn't, I, I know I told this story, but it was tricky for me to tell because it gets into the whole Hunters, the hymn of the Hunter, and some of these guys knew that, but I didn't want to like make too big of a deal of what had happened on this short little hike, but it's something that has stayed with me all these years later. So that's that's uh, the story of my hike up to the Hunter's Cave, Milarepa's Cave, near Manang in Nepal on the Annapurna circuit. I hope it I hope it was an interesting story. I hope it gave you some insight into into something you may not have known a lot about before. And I hope you you uh you benefit from listening. Uh, I'd say just to sort of recap the story of Milarepa. Milarepa's story is about jealousy and the effects of jealousy. As a child, Milarepa's mother is is jealous of her relatives, and the, and Milarepa's the course of Milarepa's life is entirely determined by jealousy. And then later, within his story, it's a it's a very nuanced story. But within it, there are all sorts of other aspects of jealousy that crop up. For example, when when Milarepa is an outcast and a beggar, he develops jealousy for a monk who's receiving alms and is able to, to, to beg and receive better food than what Milarepa gets. So Milarepa starts to pursue Dharma, not just because it will benefit him and help him, but because he thinks he, he's jealous of the monk. And so Milarepa, throughout, through his austerities, through his Dharma practice, through his karma, through his creation of karma, an action, is able to attain to great enlightenment. Milarepa ultimately succeeds Marpa Lutsawa, and Milarepa becomes a lama. He, is, he's, he goes from the outcast that no one acknowledges or cares about on the side of the road to a lama. He has his own gompa. He has people who, who follow him. He's, his whole life has changed. The person who is envious of the scraps that a begging monk receives. The man who pursues Dharma practice because he has jealousy for a monk ultimately attains to, to being a lama, to becoming a member of an established lineage. And I think it's interesting also that at the end of Milarepa's story, when Milarepa is 84 years old, an 84-year-old Lama, at that point probably an invalid in many respects, he's being taken care of. He's poisoned by a monk who's jealous of everything that Milarepa has. And the monk poisons Milarepa's, uh, I believe it was a, a curd, he, he had milk curds that was like a treat, something that Milarepa enjoyed eating. It's like the food that he really liked, curds. And so the, the monk poisoned those and killed him. I always found Milarepa's story to be very close to my own in that when I was a child, looking back at my childhood, a lot of the things that happened to me 
like the denial of my treatment for autism or just even as a child denying to me the diagnosis of what I had as a condition was done out of jealousy. My parents were jealous of other parents and their children who didn't have autism. So there's a lot of, a lot of my life has been colored by jealousy throughout it. Have I had jealousy towards others because of being autistic? Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's even more kind of frightening is that my understanding of that was never even accurate. Now that I have a better understanding of the condition that I have, I don't really have a lot of jealousy. <laughs> I mean, maybe I do. I think, you know, there, there are things that we'd like to have that other people have. But the obsessive, the obsession with, the, with what other people have and what I don't is, is not, as, not a big, as big a problem now as it, it maybe has been at different points in the past. But Milarepa's story, I think, is, is so accessible and important also because in Buddhism, there wasn't really a discussion of jealousy within the context of Buddhism. In Buddhism, there are the three poisons of greed, anger, hatred, and delusion or ignorance. Those three. And so uh, jealousy is, you could make an argument that jealousy is kind of a fourth, although it kind of fits into some of the other poisons. Um, I hope listening to, listening to this story has been interesting for you, and, and I hope that it helps you to develop a better resistance to the three poisons. You know, there are, there, are, there are components of this world. They're all here in the world, the three poisons. But we have to guard ourselves against them so that we can avoid, avoid bad actions that cause harm. And so listening to the story of Milarepa, I hope you have benefited. I hope it's given you insight. I'll be posting more videos soon. So, Tashi Namaste. Bye.